Hello and welcome. I'm Bonnie. And I'm Lily. And this is Little Home Organised, a podcast dedicated to helping you declutter, get organised and reclaim time for the things you love. Your role as a parent is a shepherd, not an engineer. With ADHD, you feel like you're a bad parent. <laughs> yes, you do. And, and the public accentuates that. When we understand that we are dealing with a disabled youngster, that should elicit from us a willingness to help. Hello and welcome. Today we'll be joined by Dr. Russell Barkley to talk about organising children with ADHD. We'll chat about some of the essential ideas to remember about children with ADHD and how we can help them be more organised. As a mother of a recently diagnosed child with ADHD, I am really excited about this episode. I'm very excited too, Bonnie. But first things first, let's introduce our guest. So Dr. Russell A. Barkley is a clinical professor of psychiatry at the Virginia Commonwealth University Medical Center in Richmond, Virginia. Dr. Barkley is a clinical scientist, educator, and practitioner who has published 26 other books and more than 300 scientific articles and book chapters related to the nature, assessment, and treatment of ADHD and related disorders. He is the founder and editor of the clinical newsletter, The ADHD Report, now in its 28th year of publication. Dr. Barkley has presented more than 800 lectures in over 30 countries and has received numerous awards for his lifetime achievements, contributions to research and clinical practice, and the dissemination of science. You can find out more at russellbarkley.org. My goodness, welcome Dr. Barkley. <laughs> wow, who is this guy? <laughs> He's amazing. Oh, and that's my, the shortened my, version. <laughs> my life was flashing before my eyes. And at my age, that's not a good thing. <laughs> well, what a pleasure to speak with you. Oh, we're so delighted to have you here today. We're, um, we're really excited to cover this topic. And clearly we are speaking to the expert on it, which is really awesome. Yes, thank you. thank you for joining us, Dr. Barkley. We really appreciate it. Um, as I was mentioning to you before, my daughter has just been diagnosed with ADHD. So for the last three months, I have been researching like a mad woman, everything <laughs> I can. And I first uh, came across your three-hour lecture in Canada, I think it was in 2014. Yes. And I, I just soaked it up like a dry sponge. It was just life altering. And so that's why I knew that we had to come and have you on the podcast because there are so many other parents and grandparents who would really benefit from your knowledge and wisdom. Thank you. Thank you. Well, I, I really appreciate the invitation. And having been to Oz many times, I love the country. My children went with me for five weeks and didn't want to leave. Do you believe that? They didn't want to come home. They just thought this was the, the greatest country they'd ever been to. So um, uh, so I have, I have many friends down there, and it's a lovely place. So it, when you invited me, how could I say no? I, I mean, it's uh, always good to... <laughs> speak to people down under, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're too kind. Well, yeah. we appreciate it anyway. Now, Russ, you've got a new book coming out. You've written a lot of books before, but you've got this new one that's coming out right about now. Mm -hmm. uh, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yes. Um, I wrote the book because uh, about a year ago, I began um, thinking about, I'm coming to the end of my career. I'm 70, probably will retire in a few years. Uh, not sure of that yet. But it forces you to look back on your life and saying, what mattered? What were the most important things 
from my 44 years of clinical work and practice, from all of my research, plus I review all research published in the world every week. Uh, so I have hundreds of thousands of articles and references. What can you do with that information to distill it into the key ideas that parents need to know? You know, at the end of the day, what's the most important stuff? So I created a lecture and I gave it a couple of times in various places in the world and people loved it because it was kind of one of those distillations of wisdom from all these different sources of information. And then I wrote the book over the winter months. So it's called The 12 Principles for Raising a Child with ADHD. And it literally, truly is what I think are the best ideas that if you have somebody in your family with ADHD, you must know these ideas. You can forget the rest of the stuff, but this is crucial. So uh, mm. that's the book that's uh, coming out here in the next uh, week or so. Yeah. I'm so excited to read it myself, I have to admit. And Russ has been generous enough to give us a copy of his book to hand out to one lucky listener. So if you would like to win a copy of Russ's new book because you might have a child or a loved one with ADHD, please leave a rating and review either on the Little Home Organized podcast page or over on Apple Podcasts. Send us a screenshot and you will be in the chance to win that. And we will draw that within the next two weeks. But before we go any further, yes, let me ask you a question, Russ. Yeah. What is ADHD and what are the common misconceptions about it? Well, that's where we need to start, because principle number one in the book is that you need to understand ADHD as what it really is, not how it's presented in our diagnostic manual, not how you might read about it in the mainstream media, you know, on a particular website. Those are very superficial descriptions of ADHD as a problem with hyperactivity, impulsiveness, and inattentiveness. Uh, those are surface features of ADHD, and they really trivialize the underlying problem because under the hood, so to speak, uh, uh, in the mind, what is going wrong is that the part of the brain that develops self-control, self-regulation, known as the executive brain at the front part of the brain, is not developing properly. It's about two to three years behind. It's about 30% behind in its uh, connectivity and, and, uh, and activity. And that creates a wide swath of problems for people with ADHD. And if you don't understand that ADHD is a disorder of self-regulation and the executive brain, then you have missed the point. All right? This is not an attention disorder. The name should be changed, but it never will because of legal and other regulatory issues. So we're stuck with it. But it's a bad name that I think does not foretell the, Truly represent. the scope, yeah, the, the, yeah. the difficulties. So there, I'm just going to list them. There are seven executive functions in this part of the brain, and they interact to allow us to become self-regulating, independent people who can look after ourselves and see to our welfare. And so if they're not developing, that's what you're going to lose. And that's why these children have such difficulties in uh, growing up in school, in life, with peers, and then later in life as well. So I'll just be very quick because I know our time is limited. The first executive ability is self-awareness, paying attention to yourself. They don't do that very well. 
So as a result, they don't understand how bad they can be and how much trouble they're in because they're not monitoring their behavior the way other people do. The second is inhibition. You already know that. The mind's breaks. Uh, it is out of control. They are not able to inhibit actions, uh, both words and gestures, as well as emotions. They're very emotional because of this inhibition problem. So, you know, the ideas are up, out, done before they've even contemplated what they're about to do. So a lot of impulsivity. Number three is what we call working memory. I'm going to come back and talk about that. Working memory is a very special memory in the frontal lobe, remembering what you're doing and how to get there. So it's the goal. It's the steps to the goal. Uh, it's the progress toward that goal that you're making. And we actively hold it in mind when we're engaged in any behavior directed toward a task or toward the future. So I'll come back and talk about that as one of my, uh, one of my key principles. And then there are two kinds of working memory, visual imagery and the mind's voice, self-speech. Both of those are very problematic for people with ADHD. So that's going to lead to some other problems I'm going to talk about, which is time blindness. Uh, ADHD disrupts the ability to sense time and then to control yourself relative to time. And it creates a massive disorder of time management. There is no psychiatric disorder that interferes with timing and time management the way ADHD does. So people have to look at this as a form of time blindness. And I'll come back and talk about that and what we need to do about that too. And then the last ones are uh, emotional self-control, self-motivation, and planning and problem solving. They all go together. It's like a Swiss army knife of mind tools that interact by the time <laughs> you're an adult. It takes 30 years to get them all. Uh, each takes about a decade or more to develop. They develop in a sequence. Uh, but by adulthood, you better have all seven or you're going to be in big trouble. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah I think, you know, you, you kind of hit the nail on the head there that there is this like misunderstanding out there or this simplification of what ADHD looks like. And so when you really do break it down, you realise that it is quite a complicated issue and, and no wonder, you know, when we're speaking about children, especially, it's not as simple as, oh, they're a bit energetic. That's, that's <laughs> There's right. a lot more going on. Well, and that's because in the preschool years, that's kind of what you see, because the executive functions are only just beginning to emerge. I mean, we don't get the voice in our head until between five and eight years of age. So we don't see that mm -hmm. they can't use language to guide themselves to follow an instruction, to tell themselves what to do the way other children are doing. We don't begin to get visual imagery, really, until about three to five years of age. And even then, it takes a decade. And But visual imagery, that is thinking back about the past and using images to guide us, is where we get hindsight from, which leads to foresight, looking back to look ahead to get ready for where I am. And they have none of that. So there's no looking back. There's no looking ahead. They live in the now. And uh, th that's why they keep making the same mistakes over and over again. The past doesn't matter. It just doesn't come forward to guide behavior. So, I mean, I could go into much, much more detail. I have books written on this view of ADHD as an executive disorder. But the principle number one is you have to understand it's a disorder of self-regulation. It's neurological and genetic in origin, so it's very biological. It's one of the most genetically um, influenced psychiatric disorders that we know of other than autism spectrum disorder. 
Uh, it is not due to bad parenting. It has nothing to do with schooling. It has nothing to do with screen time and how, you know, how much you're playing video games. It's not due to your diet mm. or sugar and all these other misconceptions. It's a heavily yes. neurogenetic disorder, which is why we call it a neurodevelopmental disorder. And you have to understand that too. You know, you didn't cause this by the way you raised this child, even though other people will tell you that. Uh, you know, mm. we're very good in both of our countries at what I call mother bashing. And that is anything wrong yes. with children is the mother's <laughs> fault. Uh, and yes. so you get these glares and these snide comments in public places. And why can't you control that child? And yeah. what's wrong with you? And the big you know. C word control. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And what they don't understand is, you know, you have a child who is biologically out of control, uh, which mm. really is a disability. So you have to step mm. in and become their executive brain, their frontal lobe. And that's exhausting because, I mean, you are in the trenches 24-7 because of this failure to develop self-regulation. So when you were talking there, um, Russ, about it being genetic, is it highly hereditary? Yes. Like what are the stats on it? Yeah, well, I'll just very quickly run through it. Um, There's only one other disorder as genetic, and that's autism spectrum. Uh, So about... Uh, 80 to 90% of the variation in the human population in ADHD symptoms. So just take the entire planet. If you look at all humans and how much variation in their self-control, in their ADHD, is genetic, it's about 80%, which is almost that for human height, uh, which is a physical trait. So we have a psychological trait that is almost being as genetically influenced as a physical trait. And the reason for that is that it's crucial to our survival. This really is the means by which people survive. And when it's not developing properly, your survival is at stake, your, your ability to function effectively. Uh, so I don't want to go into all of that evolutionary you know, stuff, but it, it really is important that people understand the biology of it. If a parent has ADHD, half of their children will get this disorder. That's stunning. Uh, If a child has ADHD, a third of their siblings also will have it. So it's just amazing. You know, 25 to 40 percent of the parents of ADHD children are still actively ADHD themselves. And now, you know, we know it's genetic because we study twins. We've mapped the human genome. We're identifying multiple sites in the genome that are contributing to risk for this disorder. So this is not hypothetical. This is a fact in the bag that ADHD Mm. is so highly genetically influenced in humans, but that's because self-regulation is so genetically influenced. And ADHD is just the lower end of the trait of self-control. So if you think about Mm. height, for instance, if you think about somebody who's really, really small, maybe to the point of dwarfism, you know, that's just the lower end of the height trait. And ADHD mm-hmm. is the lower end of the self-regulation traits that we have. Mm. Uh, so yes. it falls along a spectrum. We all have a little bit of it. But when it becomes so frequent, so severe, so delayed that it causes harm to a child, that's where we draw the line and put a label on it. But it is dimensional. Mm. Uh, and as a result, people vary in how much ADHD they have, including typical people. But it's very severe in people with the diagnosis. Mm. Yes. Okay, so I'm a parent with a child with ADHD. What is my role? How do I help them? That, that, that is a great question because principle number two in my book is that if you understand number one and what we're really grappling with, with here and that you have a literally 
neurologically disabled youngster that you're trying to raise, that should engender a couple of things in you. Number one, it should trigger a grief reaction because none of us like to jettison the notion that our child try not is to not cry. typical. It's okay. <laughs> uh, I've done it myself. Uh, I'll tell you about <laughs> yeah. that some other time. So the first thing is we grieve, and we grieve the loss mm-hmm. of normalcy of our children. Uh, and that's important. And clinicians need to be aware of that, acknowledge it, help with it if necessary. But the end stage of grieving is where I need you to be, which is acceptance. Uh, and if you're struggling with this and you're listening to this program, just Google Welcome to Holland. Welcome to Holland is a short story of a mom from her pregnancy to the delivery of her developmentally disabled child. And that transition, that stark change from what I hoped for, what I planned for, where I was going, turns out to be this. And the, the basis of the story is, is she said, it was like I was planning to go to Venice and I wound up in Stockholm. Both mm-hmm. very nice places, but you weren't prepared for Stockholm. You don't know the language. It's not where you wanted to be. So the issue here is grieve the diagnosis. That's fine. We want you to. But come to acceptance. You got to own it. This is my child. That's not my child anymore. That child I had all these dreams and hopes about. I don't have that child anymore. This is the one I have. I have to get you there to that spot of acceptance. And then acceptance leads to compassion. When we understand that we are dealing with a disabled youngster, that should elicit from us a willingness to help, to protect them, to accommodate them, to make the changes we need for them, to advocate for their needs. There's a role here that comes with compassion of uh, someone who suffers from a developmental disorder. And so I need you to move through those stages. And if you do that properly, we get to principle number two. Your role as a parent is a shepherd, not an engineer. And the reason I say that is that parents these days think that they design their children, that they can turn them into anything they want to with baby Einstein toys and playing classical music to your uterus (laughs) when you're pregnant and, and every little thing I do in the home. So we're helicopter parents. We're all over the place, you know, because we think that every little molecular interaction with this child has this profound deterministic effect on who they're going to be and their outcome and their traits and, and everything. And so parents get overly invested in designer children. Um, and trust me, evolution and nature would never have allowed this to happen. So I need you to back <laughs> off right, and understand you're a shepherd, not an architect. You don't mm. get to change this child. Russ, I think that's actually really liberating. It is. Because it be. I feel it, like a it, lot of it's very free. A lot of parents have a lot of anxieties around, you know, making sure that they're giving their chance their child every possible right. opportunity and, you know, it is all, all those crazy oh, you know, yeah. this toy, they have to have this toy. This is the toy that's supposed to help them with this thing. Yeah. And, you know, the idea of shepherding, it's like it's very beautiful, but it's also liberating for a parent too. Especially cuz with with ADHD, you feel like you're a bad parent. <laughs> yes, you do. And and the public accentuates that. The, the people yes. who don't know ADHD uh, are just going to reinforce that. So I want you to step back and understand this is the gift I was given, is this child. And mm. I have to adjust to this. 
That's what shepherds do. Shepherds don't turn sheep into dogs or cats. They are responsible for the sheep, okay? It's a very yes. important job. Nobody's saying just leave them a loaf of bread and, you know, go off to Auckland <laughs> and play, you know, play the slots, you know? We're, we're basically saying that your role is not a designer, okay? It's a shepherd and a caregiver. And with that role, um, I, and that change in perspective is so profound. One is it's very liberating, and I'm glad you pointed that out. Um, the, the other thing is that if you think you're an engineer and your child turns out well, you think you take the credit. If you think you're mm-hmm. an engineer and you have a disabled child, you get the blame. It's your fault. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there's a downside to thinking you're an engineer. And that is, what if you have a child with problems and they're not your fault, but you think they are? And now I've got two patients on my hands. I've got a depressed parent and I've got this child I have to deal with. So um, to me, the shepherd metaphor for parenting a developmentally disabled child, any child, not just, I mean, even typical children, emphasizes where you put your time, all right? Your time is not involved in what am I doing in my house and the little molecular things. The most important decision you make is the pasture. Where do I rent? Where did I buy my home? What's the school? What's the peer group? What's the neighborhood? What's the resources? So the pasture you're choosing has a profound influence over a child's outcome, much more than anything you'll ever do inside your home short of child abuse. So, and yet parents think it's the other way around. Everything I do in my home is shaping my child for who they're going to be. And, you know, the outside world can, you know, just be gone. Uh, and it's, it's actually the other way around. The external influence are going to be profound. The, the peer group, the schools, the resources, uh, all of that matters. What you were doing on a day-to-day basis doesn't matter quite so much. Uh, it's important, especially for your relationship with your child, but it's not going to determine who they're going to be. That's out of your hands. So your child is a unique genetic mosaic of your family, recombined into this classy little gift of a package that you get to raise. So part of it is do your job as a shepherd. Okay, so protection okay, from the elements, safety, nourishment, stimulation, great pastures, and then sit back and watch the show. The rest is really (laughs) out of your hands. And there's a good part of chance Mm. involved in that too. So it can Mm, be liberating, okay? You can kick back and say, this is what I got, let's deal with it. Uh, On the other hand, there are responsibilities of being a shepherd, okay? And that is that you gotta look after the sheep and do your job. Uh, And if you do that, then it'll be a wonderful collaboration. All right. And before we get into more um, details of how you can be a responsible shepherd, I think we're going to take a little break for a clutter confession. Clutter confessions. <laughs> oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> so our clutter confession is all about something weird, wacky or wonderful that you've held on to, Russ, that someone yeah. else might walk into your house and go, that's unusual. Have you yes. got anything in mind? Yeah. Well, I, I'll just point out, if you look at the shelf behind me, it, there's a bit of clutter there because I pick up mementos from all over the world wherever I go, just so that when I look at it, it reminds me of when I was in the country. I've got stuff from Oz over there. I've got boomerangs and I've got, nice. uh, you know, uh, some Aboriginal stuff. So it, it's really cool. But uh, some people would think that's cluttered, but it has very personal meaning to me. Um, but the, the real clutter is if you came in my house and went into my guest bathroom, you would see a bunch of rubber ducks. <laughs> Little <laughs> yellow rubber ducks. Uh, And of course you would wonder, 
what is going on here? <laughs> yes. Uh, and what's it doing all over the bathroom? So uh, here's the story. It's a very cute story. Uh, I love it. Oh, but fabulous. How did I get involved in uh, cluttering up my house with rubber ducks? Um, uh, <laughs> about three years ago, when I moved to Richmond to help with my grandson, who was on the autism spectrum, uh, he was quite young. He was only uh, about four at the time, three and a half. And um, so I took care of him for three hours a day, and I worked with him along with the seven hours of therapy that we arranged through our local autism uh, center and uh, became a second father to him. And after two years of working with him, uh, along with all the other therapists and his parents and everybody, you know, let's give credit where credit is due, um, I I needed a break. And so I took a a two-week, 3,000-mile road trip around the U.S., uh, just to get away and recharge my battery so I could come back and, and keep going. And um, the day before I left, I took my grandson with autism to the car wash, and they handed out little rubber ducks at the car wash. And we named him Magellan, Maggi for short. <laughs> and uh, so the next day I'm leaving town, and I'm trying to think of how I can stay connected to my grandsons, especially this little boy, now that I'm going to be away from him. So I put Maggie on the dashboard of my pickup truck and I headed out and Maggie was my guide all over the U.S. And I have pictures of Maggie in my car, in restaurants, in Starbucks, meeting new people. Oh, this and, is awesome. Um, everywhere we went, Maggie was introduced to everybody and everybody had to give me a picture. And every day <laughs> I wrote a newsletter for my grandchildren. Uh, this is what Maggie did today. And Maggie was swimming in a lake in Canada, and Maggie crossed the Lake Michigan from Michigan to Wisconsin on a ferry boat. And, um, you know, Maggie got put in timeout for stealing chocolate raisins. And, you know, it was just a really, <laughs> it, was, it was a great trip. And everybody around, and I met, I was lecturing in Wisconsin, and I met one of the century's greatest psychologists, Donald Meikenbaum, who was a friend of mine. Uh, and Donna and I were lecturing together, and when I told he and his wife the story, they started finding rubber ducks for me. And then other people started finding rubber ducks for me. And then as I was traveling and meeting people, they gave me the rubber ducks that they had for their children. <laughs> so my duck was collecting family <laughs> all over <laughs> the earth. So I've got fireman ducks, I have police ducks, I have all kinds of ducks oh, up in the bathroom. Um, and I still have the collection of a daily reports from Maggie on the road that I wrote to them with pictures of, of all of that. So if I have clutter, it is a deeply personal clutter that tears me <laughs> yes. up whenever I even think about it because they loved it. Absolutely. That is it. great. Yeah. You sound yeah. like a great grandpa, oh. Russ. Well, yeah. I'm enough of a nut that I, I do zany things and I'm a little <laughs> disinhibited. ADHD's in my family and I got a touch of the disinhibition genes for sure. But um, <laughs> so, it, you know, it leads me not to care as much about what I do as other people do. And therefore I take chances and I do not, you know, nutty stuff. Yeah, so. 
you know what you're going to have to do now? You're going to have to take a photo of the ducks and send it to <laughs> yes. us so we can share it with We want to see the ducks. Okay. <laughs> oh, All yes. Right. I want to see these ducks. All right. Fantastic. <laughs> we'll okay. So that's my clutter confession. I'm a duck collector. That's beautiful. <laughs> you're a duck collector. I'm just trying to imagine you driving back at the end of your road trip with this pickup full of ducks. You know, people just seeing all these ducks driving down the highway. Were they, ducks? It wasn't just that. they were mailing them to me when I got home. Oh, how's Maggie? They didn't care how I was doing. How's the duck? Yeah. How's he doing? What's he doing today? Right. So. Uh, this so, sounds like the start uh, of a great book. Oh, yeah, you know what? And potentially yeah. now there's an international audience listening to this podcast who, who want might to know. be wanting to send their ducks. Oh, <laughs> right. yes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that, that duck went everywhere. Right? <laughs> oh, it did. <laughs> and if you have a clutter confession that you've been meaning to send in, make sure to head to the Little Home Organised Facebook page. Send your file as an audio message and we can play it on an upcoming episode. And don't worry, we will keep it anonymous. Just remember to send us in something weird, wacky or wonderful you've held on to, maybe it is a pile of ducks. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, so back on topic, Russ. Yes. One thing that I have to ask is just tell me about time. Time mm. with ADHD kids, how, how do you organise it? Yes, well, the, the first thing, uh, principle number three, I've already sort of mentioned, but it is this. ADHD is time blindness. Uh, they cannot cope with time. The biological clock is broken. There is no internal sense of time developing. And what that means then is when you start assigning time limits, as children get older, we begin to say, you've got 20 minutes to do this, 30 minutes for that, a week for a book report. Uh, you're dealing with somebody who can't cope with that. You, you immediately disable somebody with ADHD when you put time into the task, either as a time limit or a deadline, or you separate the steps of the task by large blocks of time, like a book report that you have to read and then write, and it's two weeks later before the project is ended and, and you get your grade. That is a disaster for people with ADHD. So the, the first thing is understand the clock is broken, they're blind to time, you can't talk about the past and the future. You have to help them cope in a world that values this timing dimension. And the way we do that is if the internal clock is broken, you have to make time physical, external. So for instance, you've given them something to do. There better be a spring-loaded cooking timer or a counter or your digital stopwatch on your cell phone, but time has to be visible in front of them. Go to Amazon and you can buy a one-foot clock with a giant red disc that goes up to an hour and you set it for the time limit, and they can see the red disappearing as the clock goes. That's what I'm talking about. There has to be an external reference to the time dimension, or they can't cope with that. And so, Russ, what you're saying is it's more than just like an analog wall clock or a digital clock. The actual seeing the movement and seeing like time passing. Like sand going through the hourglass. Yeah, that, yeah. That's why an analog clock is far better than digital. Because yeah. digital, you're just seeing the current number. With analog, I'm seeing the past and the future, where I've gone, what lies ahead. One of the beauties, mm -hmm. so why many of us still keep analog clocks around, uh, is that your sense of yourself in time is better with an analog device. Uh, and, mm. it, and that's also true for ADHD children. So you have to make time real. You have to make it physical. It has to be in front of them in the visual field, in the setting where the timed task has to be done. Now, that causes some problems because some assignments are long-term. 
uh, take the book report. So how, how do I mm-hmm. do with that? I mean, I don't have a clock that runs for 14 days. So uh, how do we do that? Well, we take long-term tasks and we break them into baby steps into the little units of time. And we do that by, uh, take the book report. You're gonna read three pages with me today. We're going to take some notes today. You're going to write two sentences about what you just told me. And we're gonna do this every day. So we are going to build, a, take these baby steps. I think of them as bricks of time. And we're gonna build these bricks into a bridge across the time gap of two weeks. But it's gonna be done on a daily, frequent, small quota basis with frequent rewards along the way, and then we can bridge time. But you're not gonna stand on one side of the river of time, point to the other side and keep admonishing the child, it's due, you have five days, where are you, what have you done? You know, you are of no value to somebody with ADHD when you point at the future. Mm -hmm. You are of great value if you will break the future into small pieces and bring a piece into the now every day. And then when we get there, we built the bridge. So, and don't tell me that, oh, well, they're going to have to learn to do this. They don't, okay? So they will wind up in, wherever they do in life, they will wind up doing things that do not emphasize that kind of time Mm. the way other people do. So it gets better. The clock gets better. They do develop an internal clock. It's never where it's supposed to be. Mm. They're always behind other people. So that's, to me, principle number three is nobody talks about the timing issue unless you've read my books, but it's ubiquitous in the literature, in our science. We've known about this for 20, 25 years, that this disorder has something very specific that it's doing to devastate the timing circuit in the brain. And uh, and we have to help them with that. You know, admonishing them doesn't replace the clock. They need accommodations, compensations, and other things to deal with time. As one 30-year-old mom told me, she said, I have ADHD and I've never understood what you people mean by time. It escapes me. Mm. I can't sense it. I can't react to it. I can't cope with it. I don't know how much time I spent, how much time I have left. You know, whereas if I ask you, you'll have a general subjective sense of time Mm -hmm. and they don't have that. It's devastating because the single best predictor of occupational success is time management. (laughs) that's a big one. So what does that tell you? Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I want to, before we wrap up that principle, come back to one of the implications that I mentioned earlier, but we're going to turn it into another principle. I said that ADHD is a neurogenetic disorder, neurological disorder of the executive system of the brain, and it's delaying your child's development by about two to three years of brain maturation And psychologically, it's about 30% to average it, just a rough rule of thumb. So this becomes incredibly important as one of our principles. You need to learn your child's executive age. Mm -hmm. You know their chronological age. They're 10. What's their executive age? It's about seven. Mm -hmm. What does that do for you? It tells you that you cannot ask for 10-year-old functioning. You can't ask this child to do 10-year-old length Homework, classwork, schoolwork, chores. You can't ask them to organize their life and plan around time and avoid distractions and control their impulses and handle their emotions. All those executive things I mentioned are like that of a seven-year-old. 
And that's where they are. And you keep asking for 10-year-old. Mm-hmm. You know, why aren't you like these other kids? I mean, you're the same size as the other kids. You're in the same classes with these other kids. Why can't you be like these other kids? They can't. Yeah. And so our job is to take our expectations and reduce them by 30% down to that age. Mm-hmm. And there is nothing... I mean, everything in life can be adjusted this way. I'll just give you some examples. If a teacher gave your child two hours of homework at age 10, you should laugh at them. That is incredibly ridiculous because this (laughs) child can probably do about 10 minutes on their own before they're off task and dysregulated. And you're giving us several hours. You're you're now asking for a fight at home. You are going to see such family conflict that you're asking parents to impose a demand that a disabled child cannot do. Mm -hmm. And you didn't tell the parents that. So what you need to do is you need to cut that homework assignment down to somebody who's seven, right? And then they can do it. Even then, they're going to need some help, but they can still do it. So part of a job as a parent in helping make our kids organized and better and successful in school and at home is making these adjustments down to where they are. You do it for a child with intellectual disability. You do it for a dyslexic child when it comes to reading. Mm -hmm. You need to do it for this child when it comes to self-control, organization, time management. They they don't have it. And so uh, I'll give you a second example. Here in the U.S., at 16, your child's going to want to drive a car. Subtract 30% off of that and now answer the question, should they drive? No, you just gave an 11-year-old a motor vehicle. I didn't say they can't get a license. I said, what do you have to do to teach an 11-year-old to drive? Mm, Well, guess what? That's what you've got to do. Longer's learner's permit, under supervision, very strict, a lot of accounting going on here Mm -hmm. and monitoring of the vehicle. And, you know, for like 35 bucks, you buy a little device that plugs into your dashboard and it blocks all cell phone signals in the car. Because mm. you will not, you cannot trust them with technology while they're driving. It oh, becomes an no. incredible source of distraction and, and life-threatening. So, you know, suppose you have a 14-year-old daughter and the family next door comes over and they've got a three-month-old and they want to go to dinner and hire your daughter to babysit. Well, your daughter has ADHD. Subtract 30% off of that. Are you going to let her go over there and babysit when she's got the self-control of a nine-year-old? Mm. No. Mm. Right. So you see what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Or if I did, I would go with her. Mm. We would do it together. Mm. And you know, it would be our thing. And she would start to learn how we're doing this. But I would never allow that child to do what other children are able to do independently of me. Once I apply the 30% rule to compute their executive age. Mm. So parents know the executive age because that's where we work. We're not working at normal. We're working at where they're at. Mm. I can see why you're emphasizing that the first step is parents Mm -hmm. accepting and getting to that point where they do go through the grief and they do get to the point that they're accepting where their child is at because only once they truly accept it are they going to stop looking at their child with this lens of comparison between other children their age and start going, no, we need to do yeah. things differently with you, but I've come to terms with that. Um, but if, yeah, right. if you don't get that sorted out, it, it's going to be it's going to be a losing battle. Mm. So that, right. that's really important. Precisely. And part of your job as an advocate is to make other people aware of that. Make the school, make the teachers, make the others know. Yeah. Like the coaches that are coaching your child when you go to soccer practice or swim, you know, they need to know that you've got a child here whose self-control is a lot less mature than the other uh, students you're working with. And I'll give you some suggestions and maybe we'll leave a little report card where you're going to rate their behavior every 20 or 30 minutes while they're with you. 
as the coach to give them a little accountability and structure. Um, but you cannot expect them to be as controlled as the other children. That's why they get kicked out all the time. They can't handle the independence that other children can handle. And then people blame them. You know, it's your fault. Get out. You're off the team. You know, uh, when in fact, if they just made a few modifications, he could be on the team and as good as anybody else. I mean, look at Michael Phelps, you know, the world's most decorated Olympic swimmer. His mother had his day planned down to the 15 minute unit up until he graduated high school. Wow. Every day. Wowzers. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. a pretty organized household. Yeah. <laughs> sure, so, sure is. So a lot of our um, our focus, of course, is applying these things that we're learning with very educated people such as yourselves. We recently spoke to a psychologist who specializes in children who are on the autism spectrum disorder about how can we in our homes when we are people who are maybe trying to like declutter and organize our homes and keep our children, you know, keep their spaces a bit more organized. How can we adjust our expectations? Mm. How can we come together and set everybody up for success? So when we're working with children in our home who have ADHD and, you know, maybe your house is quite chaotic or you are wanting to declutter, what are some considerations you think are really important? Well, I think for me, when you look at the workspace and the things they have to do, whether it's chores or homework or, you know, anything else you're asking them to do, you have to come back to the point I made earlier. And this is my my next principle. Uh, Working memory isn't working. Working memory is the part of the brain where we hold in mind what we're doing, the steps we want to use to get there, the progress that we're making. It's an active form of memory. It's remembering to do. It's what you lose at 55. I've been losing it big time for the last decade. (laughs) You forget what you're doing. I don't forget things, knowledge, information, you know, my past. Mm -hmm. But, you know, God help me, if I go to the mailbox, uh, you know, I'm just going to get pulled by the nose of whatever I see out there from the weeds in the garden to the paper in the driveway to the trash can out in the street. And I never get to the mailbox. So the environment takes over because my working memory is getting weak. And ADHD kids are like old men times 10. They (laughs) start one thing and lose track of where they're going and get pulled by whatever else is going on around them. And that working memory is shot. It's like Swiss cheese. It's been erased. And so they they can't remember what they were doing and they won't go back to it anyway. Mm -hmm. So you have to understand that you can't give your child lots of information and expect them to hold that in mind. So the, the phrase I use for dealing with the working memory problem is offload the information onto another device. It's a techie term for what I want you to do. And mm-hmm. that is get it out of this form of memory and get it onto a physical kind of memory device in front of you. And what are those things? Well, they're sticky notes and lists and cards and signs and symbols that you have in your visual field that are going to control you better than the frontal lobe is going to be able to do. So look at that workspace. Should there be rules here for homework? Um, My child has chores to do, feed the dog, empty the dishwasher, clean their bedroom. That should be on a three by five file card with every little molecular step Mm. listed on it and the time limit here and the reward you're gonna get. And when you say to do the chore, you give them the card. You've now offloaded working memory onto a piece of paper with a time limit, with a reward and the steps. Here we go, set your timer. 
That's how you organize them. But you don't just yell up a flight of stairs to a second-story bedroom, clean up your room, are you doing your homework, you know, and while you're cooking or, you know, having a glass of wine or whatever you're doing. Because <laughs> you can't cope after a tough day. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> so... My, my point then is that if you know that there's no working memory, you'll stop giving them information to put in working memory and you'll put it around them. Mm. Schools can do this with rules for reading, rules for science, rules for math. You know, another way of doing it is what I call becoming proactive. Before you start any transition to the next activity, whether it's going from playtime to homework time to bath time or whatever, you stop and take a minute and you get proactive. Here's what we're doing. Here are the three rules. Say them back to me. What are they? You can even write them down and hand them to them, okay? All right, here's the reward. This is what you're gonna earn. It could be points, tokens, privileges, money, electronic time on a game, whatever. But it's, there's gotta be a win for your child there. All right, so what's the reward? Next, what's the punishment? What are you gonna lose if you break these rules? Okay, I'm gonna take points away. You're gonna lose that electronic game, whatever, all right? <laughs> now, we start the task and you give them something active to do in the task. That's a trans transition plan. You can do that before you go in a store, before you go in a church, before people come to your house, before you go from you know, dinner time to homework time to bath time to bedtime. Every transition of a major activity should involve a one-minute plan. Up front, external, out here, we're all on the same page. Let's go, all right? And that's how you organize them. But you don't sit there and say, oh, well, you should be like other children and be able to do this without me, because that tells me you didn't get it. You, mm -hmm. don't, you don't know ADHD. You don't know what you're talking about. So, mm. so for somebody to say, you know, we need to help ADHD kids become organized forever, well, you just told me you don't know what ADHD is. That's mm. never going to happen, right? Mm. So they're always going to need more scaffolding, more structure, more time devices, more ways of breaking life down than other children are. Um, and my response to that is, yeah, and, and so what? We put ramps into all the buildings here in the United States so that people with motor disabilities can, can enter the building. I don't see anybody running around saying, why do we do it for them when we don't do it for the other kids? Because yeah. they're disabled, for God's sake, right? Yeah. So, so, you know, this is like building a ramp for an ADHD child when you do the things I just went over. This is their ramp. Don't tell me to take it away because that's a ridiculous idea. Mm -hmm. You know, we help people with disabilities by creating artificial devices to compensate for the disability. And, you know, that's what this game is, is all about. So, you know, you, you got to stop thinking normal mm -hmm. and think, you know, what are the needs that my child has? Uh, and you know, to me, that is this structure and scaffolding and externalizing of memory and time devices and everything. And once you get that, it's no big deal. It's automatic for you. You know what you got to do, right? I, I love all your use of the visual, you know, the bridge of time, the taking yeah. the, the ramp away, all that stuff for me who's a really visual person. It makes it very tangible, doesn't it? It, is, mm -hmm. it does. And especially when you think about the physicality of making time physical and making that working memory physical, like that, that yeah. is really helpful as a parent yeah. to, to know that. Mm -hmm. Okay, I have one yeah. final question before we let you go, Russ. I know we've gone a little sure. over time, so yeah. thank you. It's okay, happy to do it. <laughs> hey, it's my life. <laughs> yeah, that's right. When you're passionate about something, you can talk all day. Um, I could. <laughs> how much of an effect does a chaotic environment have for a child with ADHD? 
Are you talking about physical chaos, Bonnie? Yeah, physical. <laughs> uh, it's horrible. Uh, and the reason they're more likely to encounter a chaotic environment is a third of their parents have the same disorder. Mm-hmm. So now I've got, you know, especially in a, in a household like that where both the parent and the child have it, it's, it's going to be chaotic. So just a couple of things. One is um, you want the non-ADHD parent handling anything that's time-sensitive with that child, appointments, deadlines, paying bills. You take the non-time-sensitive stuff. Might be the dishes, might be the laundry, might be cutting the grass, but there's no deadline here. Second thing is the non-ADHD adult drives the kids unless the ADHD adult is on medication, okay? Uh, That's just for safety reasons, okay? Uh, Then you need to increase your monitoring of your kids. You can do that by setting your timer on your microwave to random intervals, and when it bings, go find your kids. Where are they? What are they doing? Uh, and obviously, if they're doing well, you reward them. If not, then you've caught them early. But you need some kind of random reminder to supervise the way other parents would supervise instinctively because you're not going to be doing that so much. The next thing I want you to do is do what you do for autism. Go on the Internet. There are picture sequences for most of the household routines that kids do, from dressing to bathing to toileting to washing to brushing Print out the picture sequences. They work as well for ADHD kids as for kids on the spectrum. Uh, And you need to have these at critical points in your home that visualizes what the steps of the sequence are, Uh, including if you happen to be distance learning at home like we are in the U.S. now, you should even have the day on the refrigerator broken into blocks Mm -hmm. so that your child can see where we are in the day, point to it, understand what's coming next, and so on. So organize the house, make the organization visual, physical, external, so we all see what it is, right? Uh, And then monitor your child very frequently for what they're doing. I mean, I could go on and on with all kinds of suggestions, but that that should help. No, that (laughs) that is brilliant. Like some really good practical steps to get started. Okay, we definitely need to wrap up because you have got um, other things to do in your night. Um, (laughs) If people, because I know parents will listen to this and think I need to get my hands on that book, where can they get it? Well, any major bookseller will carry it. Guilford Publications, Guilford Press is the publisher. So you can just go to guilford.com, G-U-I-L-F-O-R-D.com, or just Google my name, Russell Barclay. My website always comes up first. And if you hit it, you'll see all my books that are listed there under the books page and directory. And by the way, if you go there, go to my fact sheets page. I have got lots of fact sheets for parents that they can print out about ADHD and and other topics, including the World Federation's explanation of ADHD that came out this year that the World Federation of ADHD Associations put together. So, you know, you can go there. We have our national organization, CHAD, C-H-A-D-D dot org. Go there. They have 38 blogs on sheltering in with an ADHD child. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's incredible the amount of information that they have for all the topics that might concern you, because that's our national charity for ADHD here in the U.S. So there's lots of stuff out there if you know where to find it. Mm. Uh, and I would start with those those two websites. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Russ. It has been so Wonderful speaking with you today. I know that we've both learned a lot. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Yeah, we absolutely have. So thank you so much. And check out russellbarkley.org if you would like to learn more information. Thank you. And that's all for this week. Thanks for choosing to have us in your ears. 
And remember, progress, not perfection. See you later. Bye. Hey, we'd love to keep the conversation going. Head over to the Little Home Organised Community Group on Facebook, ask questions, find motivation, and share your before and afters. And if you enjoyed the show, please help us keep it going by hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's free and ensures you do not miss an episode. But if you really want to share the love, leave us a rating and review. Trust me, it makes all the difference in the world. 